0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for the rain we have been given these past couple weeks. And Lord, we thank you for gathering us here together so we can worship you. We pray for the flooding in central California. We pray for those affected. We pray you be with them and give them a peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, we pray for our deeply divided country. We pray that we can be a light in the darkness. We pray for strength and the desire to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we pray for patience with those whom we disagree, both in and outside of the body. Lord, we pray for our pastors and our elders. We pray you continue to give them wisdom and discernment on how to best tend to the flock you have put in their care. And God, we also pray you encourage them. And Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness to you. Heavenly Father, we want to hear the message you have prepared for us in your word. So Lord, we pray that you still our hearts and give us ears to hear. Help us to take this time now to pause and listen for you. God, we thank you for this time together. And we pray that you conform our desires to your desires so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 17. When
1: Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son having accomplished the works you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you gave me. I've guarded them and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled. In themselves, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I, have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them (laughs) even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you loved, me may be in them. and I in them.
2: Amen. All right, Thank you, Jeremy. Well good morning. good morning. My name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me, and as you can tell we are back in John. This morning, I never want to leave John. And we enter back in in the shadow in the ever-growing shadow of the cross. So let's pray. Oh Father, what a tremendous gift John 17 is. We thank you for these words that you so graciously allow us to hear. And now by your word and by your spirit, we pray that you would illuminate our minds, rekindle our hearts, and strengthen our wills this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it happens nearly every week in my life At one point or another, I begin to feel overwhelmed. Anyone identify with that? In the face of the breakneck pace of life in the modern world, especially in the Bay Area, I try to keep up, but I regularly feel that this life is overwhelming. I feel unsettled, anxious, sometimes agitated, especially on the roads, but largely overwhelmed. Anyone identify? Where do you go when those feelings hit? Where do you go to recover? For me, I like to go for a run or I like to go for a bike ride or maybe a hike. But I've also found that Scripture is a good place to go. Places like Psalm 23 or Romans 8, there is no condemnation or no separation. Or Psalm 46, what we read for our call to worship. But this past winter, I've discovered a new place to go. John 17. The text that Jeremy so helpfully recited for us. The text that my friend Daryl Johnson calls the conversation at the center of the universe. John 17 actually takes us to the place of Psalm 46. That place of being still. Still and knowing that he is God, while living in an overwhelming world. And I know, if I, I know now that if I go to John 17, I can breathe again. And why? Because John 17 is where we hear Jesus pray for us. It's where Jesus prays for me. It is, of course, not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus prays. The Gospel records many times where Jesus prays. Actually, at every major turning point of his earthly life, we see Jesus praying. He prays at his baptism, Luke 3. He prays all night before he selects the 12. Can you imagine those prayers? (laughs) Father, are you sure about these guys? (laughs) Peter, he's a nice guy, but he's a little unstable. James and John, they're a little judgmental, don't you think, Father? Matthew, a great mind, but he's in his mind a lot. Jesus is praying at Caesarea Philippi. When he poses the question, "Who do people say I am?" He's praying at his transfiguration, where, like at his baptism, he hears his father, his father's voice, confirm his identity. Not long after John 17, he'll be praying in Gethsemane, and he prays while dying on the cross. Jesus lives and dies praying. He's a man of prayer. He's the man of prayer. So much so that the disciples are recorded to have asked him only one thing to teach them. Lord, teach us to pray. (laughs) There is no record of Lord, teach us to heal. Or Lord, teach us to preach. Or Lord, teach us how to do a worship service on Sunday mornings. Only, Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because they realize that everything Jesus says and does flows out of his relationship with his Father, a relationship that is grounded in prayer. But most of those times when we see Jesus praying, we don't hear what he's praying. But this time, John 17, on the night before he goes to the cross, on the night he was probably feeling unsettled, maybe anxious, maybe even overwhelmed. Jesus prays for us in the presence of his disciples. And they and we hear everything in his, pra- in his prayer. So it begs the question, why? Why do we hear Jesus' prayer this time? Why does he let us hear his prayer this time? Well, I think for at least three reasons. Number one, so that we might know what is on his heart. We hear this prayer so that we might hear his heart's desires. Earlier that night, if you, you remember from the upper room discourse, Jesus called the disciples his friends. He says this, I no longer call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friendship is all about sharing the most intimate thoughts of the mind and the deepest desires of the heart. And now in the ever-growing shadow of the cross, Jesus shares with his Father and in the hearing of his disciples then and now the most intimate thoughts of his mind and the deepest desires of his heart. And he wants us to know those things. Number two, Jesus prays in the hearing of the disciples so that we might be caught up in his prayer, so that we might find our hearts beating with his. He intentionally lets us hear what he prays so we will join him in his praying. After all, the one who records the prayer is the beloved disciple, And if you remember, the beloved disciple is the disciple who has his head on Jesus' heart at that Last Supper. And this beloved disciple remembers and passes on this prayer, making it then possible for us to rest our heads on Jesus' heart. And when we do, our hearts begin beating to the rhythm of his heart. Our hearts begin desiring what his heart desires. And number three, Jesus prays in the disciples' hearing so that we might know what he will be praying when he ascends to the throne. He prays in our hearing on earth in AD 33 so that we can know what he's praying in heaven now in AD 2023. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews declares, He, the risen Jesus, always lives, always lives to make intercession. Jesus prays what He prays in John 17 so that we might know the kinds of things He's praying right now in His Father's presence. So today and the following three Sundays, for four Sundays in a row, I invite you to come with me into what has rightly been called the Holy of Holies. I invite you to come with me into John 17 and simply listen. Simply listen. That's it. Just listen four times, four weeks in a row, nothing fancy, nothing sophisticated, just listen to Jesus pray for you. Listen to the Lord of the universe pray for you and for me and for all those he calls to himself. Now, we will also ask one question of this prayer. One simple question. As you may have noticed during Jeremy's recitation, that this prayer is pretty thick. It's pretty dense. The topics and themes are many and varied, and they're intertwined, and they keep reoccurring. And it's such a thick prayer, it's pretty easy to get bogged down. So what I have found, as with many others throughout history, is the best way to get inside this prayer is to simply ask, what does Jesus desire? What does Jesus want? That's going to be our question for the next four weeks. So if you look at verse 24, Father, I desire... We'll come back to that in a couple weeks, but for now, I desire captures the spirit of the entire prayer. The entire prayer is what Jesus desires for us. The Greek word there connotes strong and unwavering determination. Father, I desire. Father, my deepest heart's desire is. Father, I want. That's the spirit of the entire prayer. So we'll spend the next four weeks listening to Jesus pray and asking, what does he desire? And specifically, what does he desire for us? Not from us. That's for other texts. For this text, Jesus is simply asking the Father for us which is why I'm now drawn to it when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Jesus is asking the Father to act for us. He's not asking us to act. He's not asking you or me to do anything. He's praying for us. So after that long introduction, let's now begin to ask this question. What does Jesus desire? Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus has now finished his teaching ministry. He's finished speaking all the things recorded in the previous chapters of John. And now he lifts up his eyes to heaven, saying, the hour has come. Hour. We've talked about this before, but just to remind you, hour in John is a technical term for the great weekend of his humiliation and his exaltation. In short, it's the hour of revelation when Jesus decisively reveals who he is and thus who the Father is. Throughout the gospel, he's continued to say, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And now, in the shadow of the cross, the hour has come. This means that Jesus is now praying in the valley of the shadow of death. And in the face of death, ultimate concerns dominate a person's thinking. So, what is dominating Jesus' thinking at this moment? The end of verse one Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In verses 5 and 24, he alludes to the same concern. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. There is one ultimate desire of Jesus' heart. It's the driving force of his entire life. Glory and glorify. Now, we've talked about these words before, but let me remind you, glory has a few different definitions, such as luminosity or weightiness. So in the Christmas story, the glory of the Lord shines around the angels. That's luminosity. That's brightness. Back in the Old Testament, Solomon dedicates the temple and the glory of the Lord fills it. That's weightiness. The luminosity of the Lord makes the space heavy. That's weightiness. But for John, glory has to do more with the third nuance. Glory is the nature and essence of a person or thing. So in this case, glory is the revelation of the nature and essence of God. Glory is what God is like. So when Moses prays his great prayer, God, show me your glory. Moses wants God to reveal who he really is. Is and what he's really like. God, show me yourself. That's what Moses wants and God amazingly obliges God reveals himself by passing before Moses declaring what he is really like. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin yet who by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. God reveals his glory. He reveals what he is truly like. That's glory. And the verb glorify then means to honor or to make manifest. To honor by making manifest. In other words, pull back the curtain that shields your nature in essence and reveal who you are and what you are. Honor your nature by manifesting, by revealing what you are really like. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Here's the deepest desire of Jesus' heart. Honor me, that I might honor you. Reveal and make manifest my essential nature to the world, that I might reveal and make manifest your essential nature. Reveal and manifest the truth of what we are really like, Father. This is Jesus' deepest desire. And we will not understand Jesus nor anything he says and does unless we understand this. Jesus lives and dies to honor the Father. Jesus lives and dies to manifest who the Father is and what the Father is like. Verse four, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In every deed Jesus does, in every word Jesus speaks, he's glorifying the very nature of God. He's honoring and revealing the nature and essence of the living God. Now, of course, John makes this clear in his gospel. And that's what I want to show you here. The glory narrative of his gospel goes like this. In chapters two and 11, or two through 11, John gathers a number of selected events in Jesus' life and ministry. He then brackets these events with the word glory. So in chapter two, after Jesus' first great sign, turning water into wine, John writes, and so Jesus manifested his glory. Then in chapter 11, just before Jesus' last great sign, raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And I believe John wants us to see the manifestation of glory through all of these chapters, two through 11. So let me walk through this narrative of John's with a so-called set of glory glasses. Okay? In chapter 2, At the wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine, not water and grapes into wine, mind you. Just water without grapes into wine. Jesus is meeting a real human need, but he is also manifesting the nature of the glorious God. The Son is revealing what the Father is like. Here is a God in which all things are possible. In chapter 4, Jesus asks an outcast woman for a drink of water. He then breaks down all racial, ethnic, religious, and gender walls to offer her what he calls living water. Yes, Jesus is meeting a real human need, but he is also manifesting the nature of the glorious God. In this interaction with an outcast woman, Jesus is revealing the steadfast love and forgiveness of God. In chapter 5, Jesus finds a man lying by a pool in Jerusalem. He's been unable to walk for 38 years. Jesus says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man does. That's glory. Jesus is meeting a real human need, but he is also manifesting the nature of the glorious God. He is revealing what God is like, a God who wants to make us whole. In chapter 6, Jesus is teaching near the Sea of Galilee. It's getting late. There are about 5,000 men plus women and children gathered around him. A young boy has a lunch of five loaves and two fish, but what are they amongst such an overwhelming need? Taking the scarce supplies in hand, Jesus gives thanks And he begins distributing more loaves and more fish, enough to feed everyone. And don't forget, there's an abundance of leftovers. That's glory. Jesus is meeting a real human need. But Jesus is also manifesting the nature of the glorious God. The Son is revealing what the Father is like, a God of abundance and not scarcity. In chapter 8, Jesus finds himself before a woman caught in sexual sin. She's on the verge of being condemned to death by the religious leaders. Jesus counters the condemnation with wisdom and grace and then truth. Jesus is obviously meeting a real human need. He saves her life but he's also manifesting the nature of the glorious God. The Son is revealing what the Father is like, a God merciful and gracious and full of truth. In chapter 9, Jesus meets a man blind from birth. People judge him and then debate about why this has happened. Jesus doesn't debate. He simply spits on the ground, puts mud on the guy's eyes, tells the guy to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He does, and he comes back seeing. Jesus is meeting a real human need, but he's also manifesting the nature of the glorious God. He's revealing what the Father is like, a God who wants to to bring light into all of our darkness. And in chapter 11, Jesus is in Bethany outside of Jerusalem. His dear friend Lazarus has died, he's been in the tomb four days. Lazarus' sisters are weeping. Jesus is deeply moved by their grief. He trembles with sorrow as he is overwhelmed with the same grief. That's glory. Jesus is revealing what God is like in that moment. Jesus then goes to the tomb where he weeps some more. That's glory. Jesus is revealing what God is like, a God who weeps with us before the pain of the world, a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who hurts. Jesus says, take away the stone. Mary objects, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Jesus replies, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And he does. A dead man walks out of the grave. At the extreme helplessness of the human condition, Jesus manifests the nature of the glorious God. Jesus reveals what God is like a God of resurrection and life. So that's the first half of the gospel. That's the glory narrative of the first half of the gospel. But it turns out there's more. There's more in the second half. The second half, in which John Calvin called the theater of glory. So let me walk through this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus declares the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. Father, reveal to the world who you are and what you are like. Show the world your nature and your essence, Father. Then Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does falling into the earth in death have to do with glory. Later that week, on that Thursday evening, Jesus gathers his disciples together in an upper room somewhere in downtown Jerusalem. And during dinner, Jesus rises from the table. He takes off his outer garments. He takes a basin of water and a towel. He gets down on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. Every single one of them, including Judas, glory this this is glory this reveals what the father is like really a few hours later in the garden of gethsemane judas and the religious leaders accompanied by by some soldiers come to arrest jesus he does not resist they haul him off to annas and caiaphas and pilate Pilate has him scourged, beaten 39 times with leather straps and pieces of broken glass. The soldiers weave a crown of thorns and pound it into Jesus' head. They hit him in the face. He does not retaliate. Glory? This is glory? This honors and manifests the Father's nature? Really? They take Jesus out and make him carry his own cross to the place called Golgotha. They lay the cross on the ground. They lay Jesus on its beams. They nail his hands and feet to the wood. They lift the cross up and drop it into a hole. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is glory. It is finished, he cries. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. And we ask again this is glory? This reveals what God is like? Really? Yes. A thousand times yes. See, John knows the mystery. The disciple who rested his head on Jesus' heart knows the mystery. The nature and essence of the luminous, weighty God is finally manifested not in a blazing burst of light or in a dazzling display of raw power. The nature and essence of the living God is finally revealed in the Son taking upon himself the sin of the world, bearing in himself all that we deserve. On that cross, Jesus is meeting the greatest of human needs. But he is also glorifying the Father. He's revealing what the Father is like. The glory of God is not the self-gratification of an egocentric monarch. The glory of God is the ceaseless and limitless emptying of God's self for the life of the world. That's what the living God is like. And that's glory. Glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is Jesus' deepest desire. And Jesus knows how that prayer is answered. He knows all that it entails, but his deepest desire is the glory of and honor of his father. Yes, he desires our salvation, but our salvation is not the driving force of his life and ministry. G. Campbell Morgan put it best when he said, the deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men and women, but the glory of God, and then the saving of men and women, because that is for the glory of God. So, as I conclude, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. What does Jesus desire? What does he want? Well, he wants you and I to know so that the whole world will know what his Father is truly like. He wants you and I to know so that the whole world will know the full extent of the self-emptying love of his Father. He wants you and I to know so that the whole world will know the full embrace of the glorious love of God. So as I rest my head on Jesus' heart today, and I simply listen to his heart's desire, I find I really can be still and know, deep down in the center of my being, I can really know that he is God and that he is for me. And that he is for me with, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. And I can breathe again. Amen. Well, at this time, I invite you to be still and know that he is God, that he is for you, and he loves you. So let's take a moment and be still and breathe as Jean plays. Now receive this benediction. As you leave here and enter back into a busy, frantic, sometimes overwhelming world, overwhelming world of the Bay Area. May you find times to be still and know that he is the living God, that he is for you, that he loves you, and that he is praying for you right now from his throne. Amen. Go in peace and stay dry.